0: Love Talk Radio. What if you were held captive and your captor asked you one question, give me a reason not to kill you? What would you say? That's coming up next, right here on The Right Stuff and welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today we're going to be talking to my returning guest co-host and contributor today, Brian Gadawa. He is the author of the fresh hot off the press release, Cruel Logic. And let me tell you, with a question like that, that is very cruel. Because I honestly don't know what I would say, dear listener. Maybe you have a better idea. Or maybe you have no idea at all, because it is a very interesting question. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. As always, I want to thank our Patreon team for their support. We've been showcasing Christian office for ten years. As God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, go to patreon.com/rightstuff. To stay up to date with PJC Media, go to pjcmedia.net. Click the pink follow button. You'll never miss a show. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at PJC Media for updates, uploads, and more. Go ahead, subscribe today. Without further ado, I'm going to bring Brian on board. Brian. How devilishly evil of you to come up with this wonderful series.
1: Hi, Parker. It's great to be on again. I remember we met so many years ago now.
0: I know at SoCal. We were at SoCal, you, me, and I think her name was Catherine. We met and we just had a wonderful time in Christ, just getting to know each other, learning about each other, and forging relationships, which is what I definitely love, and I'm so glad We can do that through the written word and through your books because you have so many. So I'm so excited you're back again. But this devilish, devilish idea that you have here, this cruel logic, my gosh, we're following the antics of a serial killer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I call it a theological thriller novel. And I did that because, first of all, the books that I've been writing the last 11 years, 12 years now, have been Bible novels. You know, they're basically retelling stories like King David and Abraham, but from with the supernatural angle, angels and demons, watchers and Nephilim giants and all that stuff. But I took a different tack this year with the last release. I wanted to, because I had this idea that I've had for a long time, and it just, I've been wanting to get it into a novel form, and now was the right time to do that. And I love thrillers. Silence of the Lambs is one of my favorite all times, as a movie, but even the novel as well. To me, it's the example of the perfect thriller of what I like, the kind of stories I like, or at least you know, one of them, serial killer ones, right? Anyway, so I call this a theological thriller novel. That's a, almost like a new genre because I wanted to tell people, before they even go into the book, having some idea of what it's about, and it was really hard to do so because it's really a unique thing that hasn't really been done. If I just call it a thriller novel or a psychological thriller, it is that. Yeah, but there's more to it than that, that people might read and go, hey, you know, you didn't tell me about all this philosophy and theology stuff, you know, but if I call it something like a Christian thriller novel, it's not really, I don't really write Christian stories like that. I have a Christian worldview, right? So just try to find, and if I call it a philosophical thriller, that would be like too heady, you know, So I came up with theological thriller novel because it originated, you kind of, uh, we talked about this earlier. It originated many years ago. I've always been in love with apologetics, and I've learned a lot about my faith through apologetics and interacting with that world. Because I'm always curious. I've got a skeptical mind. I have a lot of doubts, and I like to address those doubts and find answers and stuff. But anyway, many, many years ago, I had heard this famous Christian apologist named Walter Martin, and he's dead now. He was back in the '70s, so he was hot back in the '70s. But he was like an older guy, and He was rascally. He really had a good sense of humor, but he would also get into almost fistfights with unbelievers, at least a friendly one, if I can call it that. And I remember him talking about on this old show I was listening to, where he said he was getting frustrated talking to this atheist who didn't understand his argument that you're an atheist and you have moral beliefs, but you don't have any foundation for your morality because your atheism provides no foundation. And the guy would say, no, I do, I do. And he finally got so frustrated, he said, okay, look, it's 1940s Germany, and I'm a Nazi with a gun pointed at you, and you're a Jew. Give me one reason why I shouldn't kill you. And that sort of shook the guy up and got him to thinking about what he's trying to say. And I, of course, never forgot that. And then as years went on, I became a you know, Hollywood screenwriter, and I was you know, writing a lot of different ideas, you know, and thrill- I loved thrillers. And so I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to deal with that concept of what I call a narrative apologetic. It is a narrative story that embodies the moral argument for the existence of God. Now, you know, if you do apologetics, it could be very preachy. If you do philosophy, it could get boring with people. If you do anything that people think, oh, there's a message here, you know, they they can be very skeptical. But I thought, how could I make that? apologetics interesting. How can I make arguments for the existence of God interesting? I love philosophy, and I think that it's a very interesting world, but so many people can't handle it. Well, I thought, well, if I combine it, if I put it into a serial killer story, that will bring the excitement and the entertainment level up, and then I can work in a little bit of the philosophy and the theology and, and all that stuff within it, and that's where Crew Logic became that story that does that. And so my values are always to have it tell an entertaining story number one, and number one also is that I always communicate my worldview through whatever stories I tell. And so the premise of cruel Logic became, as you've already kind of mentioned, there's a brilliant serial killer on the, youth, on the loose at a college campus, and he's a professor. And what he does is he captures university professors, and he debates them. And yeah, the top of his debate is his moral right to kill them. So he'll capture a professor and he'll tie him up and just say, look, if what you say is true about reality, then give me one valid reason why I should not kill you and I'll let you go. And of course, these are philosophy professors, queer theorists, evolutionary biologists. You know, he captures all these different kinds of professors to wrestle with this ethical idea. And like I said, I'm unashamedly interested in these philosophical ideas, but I do think that you can do it in a way that's not preachy and that it's embodied with the character and the drama, the story. And a lot of people have been telling me I've been successful on that with this book, Cruel Logic. And so I'm very excited about that.
0: One thing I can appreciate about your approach to these very weighty topics is using the vehicle of entertainment. And... For some reason, human beings are obsessed with murder mysteries. And murder goes far back into the ancient times till now. That is something that is just ingrained in us. Who killed the dead body? Why did they kill the dead body? And with our professor here, when I read the beginning portion of your book, one thing I recognized is this. I don't think he's crazy. I actually think he's quite logical, which makes it even more terrifying. So you really created a serial killer that you can almost appreciate his tenacity for being as evil as he is, because we tend to generally see portrayed on screen and in books an evil person who does serial killing and things of that nature as crazy, very lunatics. But in this regard, and correct me where I'm wrong, I don't think you're portraying him as crazy as much as for the lack of a better term, he's a seeker.
1: Well, I'm not going to reveal the plot twists, but I will say this is that is one of the issues that is wrestled with because one of my main characters is actually a psychology professor who knows this professor, and so he's helping the cop to track the guy down, right? And the psychology professor is kind of like a Jordan Peterson, you know? He's this brilliant psychologist, and he knows all the philosophical angles as well, but he's also in this woke university context where he is trying to defend Western civilization classes, bringing those back in because he sees that you know, Western civilization is the foundation of of civilization that we have, and that if we reject it, like modern colleges are seeking to destroy, get rid of Western civilization, they hate it as, quote, patriarchal, racist, fascist, bigoted, homophobic, all that stuff, right? And so he's trying to say, no, actually, if you look at Western civilization without it, we would be chaos. And one of the founding, or shall I say, one of the foundations of that Western civilization is Judeo-Christianity, and particularly the ethics, you know, And so this is something that he's wrestling with himself on campus at the same time that he's also trying to help track down this serial killer. And it's interesting, too, because this guy is a guy who represents another kind of group of people out there these days who are defenders of Western civilization and even Judeo-Christianity as a positive force, yet they themselves are not Christians. And Douglas Murray is an example of this. Tom Holland, these are historians and commentators who are brilliant men. And they, like I say, they support Western civ and Christianity, but they're not Christians themselves. And I've always found that to be fascinating. I don't, you know, I I wanted to like wrestle through that and try to understand what is that like to have that kind of mindset and that worldview. And so as he's trying to do this, the campus is starting to rise up and student protests are starting to occur and things are starting to get violent. And so it's this these two strong storylines going on at the same time that makes it sort of brings more depth to it, but also makes it relevant for today. Because, of course, what we see on campuses now with students have been taught this postmodernism, Marxism, critical theory, and it's no surprise that high percentages of them, I think it's like somewhere around 50 to 60% of them, believed in promoting genocide against the Jews. And this is just shocking that has never been in America, you know. But we also see it with all the gender theory going on around, right, and all the cancel culture and speech codes on campuses. What is this like? What is that world like? Well, I try to bring that reality, show that picture as it really is on these college campuses, woke campuses, and to really sort of show when the education of a culture then does this sort of attack against its own civilization? When it negates God, takes God out of the picture, tries to get rid of God, what results? The theme of cruel logic is ideas have consequences. And so I try to show what are the consequences of these ideas that have been taught in the universities for at least 60 years, for sure, in terms of postmodernism and this kind of thing. But I wanted to show what are the consequences. And in the same way, you can also sort of think of that in terms of the serial killer story as well, where if you really have these certain worldviews, whether it's an atheist or whatever, naturalist, materialist, all these worldviews, and then do you really have a foundation for ethics? And if you don't have one, then what does that result in? Is it any surprise that, you know, when we teach our kids in colleges that, Morality is a social construct, right? There's no absolute morality. There's no objective morality. It's all relative, and we're only animals. Well, is it any surprise they act like animals without morality? You know what I mean? Exactly. And that's sort of the whole big picture of what I'm doing with Cruelogic, just sort of trying to capture that reality in this entertaining yet realistic depiction of a woke university.
0: I'm actually working on a top secret project that is different from what I usually write, Brian. And I was exploring some of the concepts that you said, but in a much different mythology than I write. It's top secret, so I won't give all the specifics, but it lets us know that we benefit from the Judeo-Christian ethic to the point where even if you are not a Christian, you still benefit from it. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, you still benefit from it. And this is something that is very important to discover. You were talking about the movement where people want to defend Western civilization and also defend the Judeo-Christian ethic. I call this, for the lack of a better term, Brian, so if you have a better one, please educate me, I call it social conservatism. So you want to be a conservative. That's usually where this falls into. I don't want to use political labels right now, but those are the best ones that kind of gets my point across. You want the social conservatism without the spiritual underpinnings of it. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. You cannot have the social, quote unquote, conservatism without those spiritual underpinnings. You can't have one without the other. And there are people who may agree with you, like you mentioned some of these people, who do agree with this ideology of Western civilization and its foundation along with the Judeo-Christian ethic. But it calls you to more because it's not just material. And it's not just the natural. There's a lot going on here. And your previous books that you talked about, you talk about the spiritual realm and the warfare. You are a great uh, fan of Heiser, Mike Heiser, the late Mike, Dr. Mike Heiser. I was very saddened to hear that he passed away. And all these come together from your writing experience, just from your life experience as well, to underpin why we as writers have the opportunity to use our pins to make change in the culture. And right now, there is this push to regulate creativity and regulate our writing. And I'm, for one, I'm not, for that at all. So I'm really glad that you're using this story to bring about these very weighty and knotty positions. So I'm really excited about it.
1: Yeah. One of the other sort of story elements is the free speech on campus. You know, what is allowed to be said and not said and who are those in power? You know, this is a story that deals both with the student body and how they are affected by what they're taught, as well as the faculty and how they live and behave, as well as the administration. And what a lot of people may not realize is, of course, we are now beginning to discover this with the latest shenanigans of like the Harvard presidents, you know, not willing to condemn calls for genocide, you know. Well, the point here is, is that the administration is just as guilty and just as corrupt as the faculty. In fact, sometimes more so because they're the ones who are imposing these rules of what is now called DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion. None of those of which is what the word actually says. (laughs) You know, diversity is not really about diversity. Equity is not about equity and inclusion is not about inclusion. They're all, it's really sort of a worldview that, you know, for lack of getting into the weeds too much in it, I would say it's the thing that embodies the worldview that is dominating a lot of the universities.
0: I think a lot of people were shocked, too, when this all came to light. It was as if a bright light had been turned on to this thing that had been going on for years and many people in the far reaches of the population had known about it and they had been squawking from the top of their lungs but no one heard them because we're distracted and then now we have this glaring light onto the situation at hand for example you and I both remember 9-11 and how horrible it was for us as American citizens then you have 20 years later for example, they're looking at Osama bin Laden like he should be sympathized with. And you're sitting there like, so you're perfectly okay with someone throwing two planes into buildings and killing thousands of people. And in their minds, they are feel justified in saying yes. And it was absolutely horrendous when I saw that. I said, how did Osama bin Laden become a TikTok trend? And it blew my mind. So these type of stories, Brian, you're actually writing into what I will call a void with a theological thriller, because I'm pretty sure you have a couple more in store for us.
1: I do. This is not going to be a traditional series of the same characters in new situations. There will be different thrillers, uh, different time periods and all this kind of stuff, but they will also be dealing with these kinds of issues. In fact, the next one is going to be so amazingly unique and somewhat shocking when people see it. But, you know, you're going to have to wait. I'm I'm not going to talk about it until I get closer to writing the novel. But right now I'm actually, after releasing Crew Logic, the next novel I'm working on is going to be my next Chronicles of the Watchers novel. And then I'll hopefully go to the next. So I'll be bouncing back and forth between the different series, you know.
0: It's exciting, Brian. And you know I'm a fan for sure. And I was telling Brian before the show, dear listener, just how much I appreciate his writing style in Cruel Logic because he writes so succinctly. And you may be listening to our conversation wondering, is it going to be this weighty? It won't be this weighty. He effectively takes these massive concepts and he crunches them down into small bites that are not so tiny that you swallow them without tasting the ingredients thereof, but you can really digest them and taste the flavor of these various arguments. So it's a wonderful story.
1: That's a good way to put it. I appreciate that. I do do it in like more bite bites. Now, look, to be fair, you are going to have to push your brain a little bit. I'm kind of like R.C. Sproul used to be. I loved R.C. Sproul because he, I called him the working man's theologian. He was brilliant, and he would always raise the bar challenging you to think a little bit deeper, but he wouldn't do it too much. He would do it enough, but also be able to communicate these weighty concepts and theological terms in ways that you could understand, and like you said, little bite-sized chunks. And so that's definitely how, that's my goal with this as well, But I also want to point out one other thing for those who are uh, Christian or so, you know, just want you to be aware that this story has deals a lot with evil. Now, I don't show grotesque murder scenes, okay, but I do have crime scenes of murders and I don't exploit the uh, gruesomeness. But one thing I do show is there's, if you have problems with language in stories, like the F-bomb and stuff, be aware that there's F-words in here. And as well as some other bad language. And the reason why I did that was because the language of these students on campus is deeply ingrained with the F word. So all their protests, it's F this, F that, you know. But it's not just that they're saying it as some kind of expletive. It really does capture the violent hatred that is in their hearts, that has been sown in there and bred in there. And if you don't depict that, evil accurately the whole point of ideas have consequences doesn't have the power it does the redemption which there is redemption in the story but it won't have the power because if you show these students just saying you know gosh darn it or we hate your this and that we don't like christianity instead of saying shakespeare f the bible you know you don't understand the real hatred in them that does lead to violence and there is some of that in the story in, in terms of what it leads to so, you know, if you can't handle that language, then maybe the book might not be for you. But just be aware going in that it's there. But understand, I'm not here to do gross things or, you know, write shocking. I'm not even, believe it or not, I'm not even intent on, on being shocking. I just want to be realistic. And one of my personal philosophies of writing has always been that the power of the redemption that you are offering in your story is only as good, only as powerful as the accuracy with which you are depicting the evil you're being redeemed from. So if you don't depict the evil very clearly or strongly, then your redemption is going to be weak and uninviting, quite frankly, you know, just not satisfying. And so that's what I do with my stories. I try to capture that evil, but I try to show a redemption that can counter that evil. And that's where I find it in, is, you know, of course, in Christ.
0: It's funny you mentioned that. And I love the way you said the redemption has to show the accuracy of the evil that's being depicted. And instantly I was reminded of the Netflix special of Dahmer. And they did a really good job with that. They made some creative license changes, but they did a good job showing how much of a monster he was. And when he came to Christ, that was incredible because he did accept Christ before he died.
1: Yeah, I heard that.
0: And you're kind of sitting there like, how can God accept such evil? How can he redeem such evil? But this is, I think, one of the major elements about what the Christian message is about, that God came to save the world, that Jesus came to save the world from our sins. And this is something I always say, Brian, we all have a capacity to be domers. Yeah. We're just probably a few steps away from being Dommers, or in your case, Professor Cullen. <laughs> We're just in a few steps of being there. I do have a quick question, and this is totally off the rails here. Did Cullen come from Twilight? No. Okay. I Because I saw Professor Cullen, I said, oh, my gosh, is he playing off of Edward Cullen or Twilight? <laughs>
1: no, but I will reveal an Easter egg on your program that I've not revealed in too many other places at all, and because you're bringing this up, these both things together total depravity you know our sinful nature how we can all be serial killers you know I actually deeply do believe that and that's one of the I'm dealing with human nature and is it evil and what is good and evil and all these issues and is our humans basically evil or basically good that kind of a thing and as a Christian you know I believe in the biblical view of total depravity and we're not as evil as we could be but we are tainted in every aspect of who we are by evil. And that is an essence, essence to our nature until we're redeemed. But that human nature, which also is counter to the narrative of most secular viewpoints, which is man is basically good and it's the systems or the institutions or society that makes him bad, right? It's not, he's not intrinsically bad, right? But no, I believe man is intrinsically bad. So what I deal with that notion of told depravity throughout the story. So what I did was, all the fictional characters in the story are actually based on names of real serial killers in history. Oh, delicious. Except for one character, and that's the cop. And his name is Cornelius Van Til, and his name is based on a famous Christian apologist whose work changed my life dramatically having to do with this notion, this understanding of man's depravity and and, um, good and evil and and that kind of a thing. And, you know, the point of that was it's just a creative element. That's all it is. But if if you look into it, you can enjoy it. But my point just being what you said, which is, in a sense, we all have the same evil in us that's in a serial killer as well. And if we were to feed the bad dog, right, you know, we could become that as well. Um, because that's how, how our nature is. I think that's part of my worldview, you know, but there's another component to that. And that is that all the buildings on campus, they all have names that are based on the names of potential nominees for Jack the Ripper. Oh, so, cause you know, if you know anything about the Jack the Ripper mythology, yes. right? We don't know who he was. And there's, you know, dozens of different theories about who he was. Well, All the names of all the buildings are based on that. And again, this is just something I did that was creative that people can enjoy if they know about it, but it doesn't really matter. It's not going to make anything, any theological point other than just this Easter egg thing that I'm doing, you know.
0: Brian, you're a writer. Do you have to have an explanation, really? <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah, that's true. Good point.
0: And I like the fact that it all comes down to the cruel logic, and that is available, dear listener, on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Make sure you go ahead and get your copy today. It just came out in September. Let me tell you, it is getting wild reviews. People are talking about cruel logic. So my question to you, dear listener, is this. Give me a reason. Why you wouldn't read this book. Brian, thank you so much for being with me today. I really enjoyed having you. If people want to get in contact with you, where can they find you online?
1: Thanks for having me, Parker. Well, you know, my website is Godawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. And I try to make it a very interesting one website where you can learn all about the books, but also other interesting things related to the things I write about. But, you know, to be honest, if you go straight to Amazon, all the book descriptions, you know, you can find my Amazon author page and see all the books and just look at the ones you're interested in and it'll tell you all you need to know about the ones you want to choose. Oh, also almost all my novels are in ebook, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook. So they're all the options for you.
0: Brian, in the few moments we have left, you know this show is always about encouraging authors, whom God has given the gift to write to pick up the pen and do so. So go ahead, encourage them out there today.
1: Uh, Writers?
0: Just write. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, you know,
1: I, I would say that we live in a day, an era that is full of opportunity for writers, you know, and of course this has been around for at least 15 years where Amazon opened up the ability of people to self-publish their books and novels and such where traditional publishers can't take you. And that was a life-changing thing for me. I'm a self-published author. And I just think if you are a writer, take encouragement and seek that. Now you have the opportunity to get your stories out there in a way you never had before if you didn't get a, a publisher to take you on. And it's great too because publishers aren't always right. In fact, They're often wrong. There are thousands of self-published authors who are at least hundreds, I know, that are making better sales than many of the published authors are. My point being that there is great opportunity now to be a writer and you don't have to worry about being obscure and never getting your stories out there because you can do it through self-publishing. So look into that and pursue it because, like I said, it changed my life and it's given me a very successful career in it that I did not even anticipate so I thank God for that.
0: Usually all you have to do is take a step out on faith and believe in what you're doing. And over time, you'll get better at this thing called writing, just like Brian did. So what are you waiting for, dear listener? Go ahead, pick up the pen and write stuff. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the queen, Parker J., and you have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day.